Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let's look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having their name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are, those, these are the ones who had not been defiled with women, for they had keep, kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So we look at this passage of Scripture. And we, again, do a tremendous shift. Uh, I've shared many times that Revelation is not chronological at all. There's a lot of jumping from one section of these last seven years. And here we're basically looking at the end of the seven year uh, of tribulation. Doesn't mean that we'll stay there. We'll de definitely be going back. But just kind of give you a, a little bit of a brief overview of where we have been the last few weeks. Chapters 12... 13 and 14 are this big, long, dramatic pause between the seven trumpet judgments. We had the, the seven seals broken, and then we moved into the seven trumpets. And afterwards, we're going to have the seven bowl judgments that we have not gotten to yet. So chapters 12, 13, and 14 all happen between the last blowing of the trumpet and to the first uh, bowl judgment coming. Now, if you go back and look at chapters 12 and 13, something that you may realize is that it's taken from the perspective of Satan. And if you look in those chapters, you're going to see the description of, of Satan. The great red dragon is how he is described. And then you'll see how he wants to try to con, uh, kill off all the Jews. He wants to destroy the child. I'm, I'm sorry, the woman, the, the mother. And the mother represents Israel and goes on and on about all the different ways he wants to try to annihilate the Jews. And then we're introduced into the beast that comes out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, as well as the beast that comes out of the earth, which is called the false prophet. Now, those three basically make up what we call the false trinity. Satan, the great red dragon, his whole desire is to replace God. Uh, the first beast that comes out of the sea is the Antichrist, so obviously he is trying to replace Christ. And then the second beast uh, coming out of the earth is the false prophet, and he basically acts in the similar way to the Holy Spirit. So the Satan is the anti-God, the beast is the Antichrist, or the first beast, the second beast is the anti-Holy Spirit. And so from that perspective, Satan has declared war against the Jews and all who worship Jesus. However, if you'll notice, throughout the book of Revelation, 
His, he cannot do everything that he wants to do because God is still in complete control of all that's taking place. Even the deaths of his saints during the tribulation are actually a part of his will to take place. So now that we're beginning chapter 14, we're going to see this shift from the Satan's perspective back to a heavenly or a godly perspective. And so we see that God's hand is continuing to be at work to fulfill his promises and his time of judgment is seen to be at hand. And so let's look at verse 1, the very first part of it. When, anytime you see the word I, it's talking about John, then I, John, looked. And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Okay, where are we? Well, there are some that want to say, well, this Mount Zion is a heavenly Mount Zion. But that's not necessarily the case. I don't believe it is. I believe that what we're seeing here is that this is Jesus at the end of the tribulation, at the end of that seven-year period. He has come back to earth in his victorious, triumphant form, and he is now standing on Mount Zion, the real Mount Zion. The, if you've ever studied the layout of Jerusalem, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem is this tall mountain. It's called Mount Zion. And this is where Jesus met with his disciples for the Last Supper. This is also where uh, the disciples met in an upper room and waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And so this is a very sacred place. And so this is this pinnacle outside of Jerusalem called Mount Zion. This is where Jesus will come. That's what it says. And behold, I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So we're going with what John sees in Revelation. And this is where Jesus will return. And so he is now standing on uh, the earthly Mount Zion. How do I also think that we're talking about an earthly Mount Zion instead of a heavenly one? Notice the very first part of verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. Well, if you're in heaven, you don't hear it from heaven. Right? So they're on earth. That's the best way I know how to deal with this. So Jesus, his second coming, is his final judgment, and it will come at the end of the tribulation. So, again, we're jockeying around time-wise. We're leaping forward to the end for a brief period of time to see what is taking place. And then it goes on in verse 1, the second part of it, it says, And with him... 144,000, having their name and the name of his father, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So who are these 144,000? Well, we've actually already have dealt with them before. The first time that they were introduced was Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. Revelation 7, 4 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. If you keep reading, it shows that there were 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that were sealed by God. Now, we look and we see, we don't understand why God, first of all, chose the Jewish people to be his chosen people. We, I put it this way, I don't fully understand it. But he chose Abraham. He called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, sent him on a circus route to what we now know as the promised land. Uh, from what we understand, Abraham was not even a God-fearer at the time that he was called. But it, God spoke to him. Abraham was obedient to the voice of God, and he did what God called him to do. 
And God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, all your people are to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And these people will be my people, my chosen people. And so God did that way back in Genesis. And he continues to hold forth that promise. And so this 144,000 are the promised remnant of the Jews in the tribulation. And so God has always promised that there would be a remnant. And this is the fact that there is a remnant. And he chose 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, equaling 144,000. And he sealed them at the beginning time of the revelation of, of the tribulation. So how were they sealed? Well, if you go back to Revelation 7, 4, it just says that they were sealed. But now that we get to uh, Revelation 14, it says, And they were sealed, having his name and the name of his father, God, written on their foreheads. This this is the mark of the sealing of these 144,000. So there was a physical mark, the name of God and the name of Jesus, written on their foreheads. But we look in, uh, basically this would be in contrast to those who are on earth, who are taking the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And so we look and we see that God has written their names, uh, the name of God and the name of Jesus on their foreheads. And God has sealed them not only with a physical mark, but he has also provided them with a protection. When they became sealed, God basically says, you are now protected. Satan cannot do anything against you. And so they were able to be the witnesses of God throughout the tribulation. Now there is no evidence that they are not still present when Jesus comes again. Actually, this is more proof that they are still on earth at the end of the tribulation. So throughout the seven years of tribulation, God is using them as his witnesses of the gospel. There's only two other witnesses known, and those were mentioned earlier, and they're called the two witnesses. And they were protected by God through the first three and a half years, and then at the end of that time, uh, they were killed and their bodies were left in the street for all to see for three and a half days. And then they were resurrected. And instead of be- continuing their witness, God called them up into heaven. But the 144,000 from every, everything I understand about Revelation are continuously present throughout the tribulation. So, in other words, how do people in the latter part of the tribulation, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years, how do they hear the gospel other than the 144,000? Because the two witnesses are no longer there. The only way that any others could be would be for those who came to Christ in the first two and a half years to be their witnesses, which I believe there is part of that too. But I believe the primary gospel spreading was through these 144,000. A uh, thousand uh, who were sealed. So we look and we see that uh, they were probably the most powerful means of testimony and sharing of the gospel throughout the book of Revelation. Now we pick up at verse 2 and it says, And I heard a voice from heaven. Okay? The word voice can also mean sound, and it may even be that it would be best to use the word sound. The reason why is, continue reading, like the sound. Of many waters, like the sound of loud trumpets. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So, whether it's a 
distinguishable voice, it basically says that it's more like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and like the sound of harps playing. Now, if you heard waters rushing and thunder, and then harps playing all at the same time, we'd probably think that's chaos. But there must have been some kind of a tonal uh, ability to it because as a result, they sang a new song. Now, we look, when were harps played? Well, David played a harp for, for uh, King Saul as a way to calm him. But we also see that harps are already mentioned in the book of Revelation. The 24 elders uh, had harps. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So could it be that this mention of the four uh, living creatures and the 24 elders uh, with their harps singing a new song, could this be maybe a, a foretaste of the song that was going to be sung here in this chapter? Well, we know that this is not the same one because this song, we know some of the words to it. Because it says, and they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with the blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. That's part of the lyrics. But look at what we find here. Only the 144,000 could learn the song. Well, if we just learned the song, then it's not the same song. But I believe it may have been a foretaste of what was yet to come. And so verse 3 tells us, and they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, I struggled with this when I first read through it. So let me just make sure that y'all kind of get this same perspective. Okay, Jesus and the 144,000 are on earth at Mount Zion. But they hear from heaven the thunders, the, the rushing waters, and the harps playing. And they hear this song being sung from heaven. And so the only ones present are Jesus and the 144,000. Can the whole earth hear this? Well, possibly, we don't know. But what we are told in verse 33, uh, verse 3 is that only the 144,000 can learn the song only they can hear it and understand it, in other words. And so we, we know that God has chosen these people, the 144,000, out of his own chosen people, the Jewish people, and he has protected them. Why are they maybe the only ones that can hear it? Well, number one, they're chosen of God, just like God chose uh, Paul on his road to Damascus and set him apart for a special calling. God chose these 144,000 and sealed them for a special purpose on earth. And so they were sealed, they were protected throughout the tribulation. 
But what about the other saints? There's always been a debate how many saints, believers in Christ, will remain on earth all the way up to Jesus' return. Will there still be any left? Because throughout the last three and a half years of the tribulation, they will be extremely persecuted. The, the whole purpose that Satan has through the beast, through the uh, false prophet, is to annihilate anybody who will not bow down to the image of the beast and take his mark upon him. As long as they have breath in their life, they have an opportunity to come to salvation, is my opinion. And as long as they do not take the mark of the beast, which is the final rejection of Jesus, I think they have an opportunity to receive salvation. Because otherwise, the 144,000 and the two witnesses would, would be defeated. They would not have an opportunity to lead people to Christ if somebody comes into the tribulation and cannot become a child of God. So I believe that, yes, you can receive salvation during the tribulation. And there are stipulations. You cannot take the mark of the beast because that's your final rejection that Jesus is Savior. And you have basically bowed down to Satan's image, uh, the beast, uh, as, as your Lord. And so we look and we see that this 144,000 are the only ones sealed that will remain. And so, just like uh, we were saying, the most likely picture is that all true Christians, those who refuse the mark of the beast, who bow down to Jesus as Savior and Lord, will have died a martyr's death. That's kind of my picture. If there are any Christians remaining when Jesus comes again, they're just going to be welcoming him and he will... The picture for some is that he will immediately take them up and then they'll come right back with him in his victory over Satan. We do know that uh, this song will be sung uh, by the 144,000 as a victory song of what Jesus has done. And like I said, now we look at kind of the description of the 144,000. They have been set apart for a specific purpose. Basically, I think, to be the, the primary witnesses on earth during that seven-year reign of Satan, uh, especially through the last seven years during the Great Tribulation. And let's look at how they are described. Verse 4, these are the ones who have not defiled, have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Let's just kind of stop there. Okay. They are described as those who have not been defiled by women and who have kept themselves chaste. Well, we know through the scriptures that having relationships inside of marriage is not wrong. It is not defiling and it's not uh, and you can still remain chaste. Basically, you know, two virgins marry and they you know, have been chaste throughout the relationship and they keep their relationship inside of marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. But the picture is with him saying not only being defiled with women, but also keeping themselves chaste gives us a greater picture of probably being celibate. Kind of going back to Paul when he received this special calling from the Lord when he was blinded on his road to Damascus. Paul chose to remain celibate. There's no evidence that, that Paul ever married. Uh, so we look and we see that more than likely, just like Paul, who remained celibate so that there would be 
No distractions, nothing other than Jesus to follow uh, in his ministry. He would not have to worry about taking care of a wife or children or anything like that. He remained celibate so that he could focus totally on his ministry to the Lord. I personally feel that that's the same picture that we see described here about these 144,000, that they remained celibate. And so we look and we see that um, the picture is that their whole purpose was to follow Jesus. That's what we see. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, if they're on earth and Jesus does not come back to earth until the very end of the seven years, then how do they follow Jesus wherever He goes? Well, the same way you and I do. We, we as children of God are supposed to follow Christ in our lives. And so they were obedient to God they're obedient to the Lord Jesus and his purpose for them to be on earth. And anything, just the same as us, anything that's in the heart of God is on the heart of Jesus. And it's also in the heart of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and dwells in us and gives us wisdom, guidance, and understanding of how we ought to live for him. And so they have the same opportunity to be obedient to Jesus as we do. So... Just like we, the 144,000, are to follow Jesus with their lives, to do what is right in their hearts and lives. Now, I, I meant to mention something when we're talking about uh, not defiled by women or, and keeping themselves chaste. There will be even more descriptions of total sexual perversion during the time of the tribulation. We're seeing that a lot in our world today, and we keep thinking, how, how long, oh God, just like the saints at the, uh, under the throne of God kept saying, how long, oh God, until you bring judgment? And we're saying some of those same prayers. Lord, how long will you let this keep going in our world today? Well, if you look through history, Rome was going through the exact same thing 2,000 years ago. That's Primarily, what a lot of people see is the downfall of Rome, is they became such a perverted empire that they fell from within. Guess what's happening with us today? We're becoming such a perverted nation that we are falling from within. And so this is just a repeat of history, not a new thing. But what we do see is in the tribulation there will be untold perversions taking place. But it says that these 144,000 would be able to overcome that temptation and keep themselves pure. And it says not only did they follow the Lamb wherever He went, but it says that they were uh, called the first fruit. It says these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now the first fruit takes us back to the Old Testament, takes us back to the first fruit offering. Okay, let me describe what the first fruit offering is. In the Old Testament, they farmed a little different than, they, than we do today. They planted their seed in the fall, and then the winter came, and the seeds would lie dormant in the ground, and then the spring rains would come and moisten the ground, and the warmer temperatures would hit the ground, and then the crops would spring forth. Well, certain parts of it would come up earlier than other parts. 
So when the first group of the fruit became ripe, they would pick it. And instead of claiming it as their own, they would offer it to God as a first fruit offering. Now, here's the, here's the faith that's involved. If you just picked what first came out of the ground, are you sure there's going to be anything left coming up later for you to eat? So it's an act of faith saying, Lord, we're giving the first fruit to you, trusting that you'll provide us with the future crop. Well, basically what we're seeing here is that God was looking at these 144,000 as the first fruit to God. So God had sealed them, the 144,000, and what was their purpose? It was to show that there is a faith involved that there would be more fruit to come. See, they were left on this earth protected so that more people would come to salvation. So they were the first fruit. They were the first to be sealed by God. And then as they were obedient to God and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the harvest came. We have no idea how many people came to faith in Christ during the tribulation. But I believe that it was multitudes. And they did pay a great price. They were martyred. They were persecuted for their faith. Now let's get back to the 144,000. They... They heard the song sung from heaven. They were the only ones who uh, were able to learn it. Was it because they're the only ones left? Because they were sealed and they will remain till Jesus comes again, which is the picture here, because he has come again and he's at Mount Zion. Uh, that's the picture that we see. If there are any saints remaining, I don't think there will be, but if there are any, they would not be able to learn this new song because they were not the sealed and things like that, but I believe that it's because they would have already been martyred. They would have already been persecuted and died in Christ. So now we see the last part. It says, and there was no lie found in their mouth, and they were blameless. Now, the Bible talks about us being blameless. Does that mean that we are without sin? No, obviously. So, I do not believe that the 144,000, even with the seal of God, even with the Spirit of God in them, lived perfect lives because we have been sealed with blood of Christ. We have his Holy Spirit living in us. And I guarantee you, I have sinned since then. And you have too, right? Okay, so how does God call them and us blameless without any lie in their mouths? Well, here's the situation for me and for you and for the 144,000. Any sin that's committed causes conviction. That conviction leads to confession. Confession leads to forgiveness and cleansing that God does. My, one of my favorite verses is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Forgiveness says you no longer owe the penalty for the sin and cleansing means that he wipes it away as if it never happened in the first place. That's how he can say, and they were blameless. Now, does that mean that they could lie all they wanted to and sin all they wanted to and then confess and confess and confess? No, because God's word tells us, shall we continue in our sin so that grace shall abound? God forbid. May it never be 
that we will continue to sin. In other words, God says we need to live surrendered lives unto him and allow his spirit to guide us, be our counselor, be our guide, to be the strength that we need to face all the temptations of life each and every day and to overcome them with the power of God living in us and through us. So just like us, God was able to make them pure and holy through their confession and he would call them blameless. But it also means that they had the power and knew that they had the power of his spirit in them to be the strength for them to live as close to perfection as they could. They were living in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. So just kind of wrapping things up, while we may not have received a special calling like these 144,000 or like Paul did on the road to Damascus, we're still called to live faithfully unto the Lord, to live in obedience to his will. Now, the only way that we can do that is to constantly allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and lives. And when there is evil, when there is a sinfulness in us, that he will convict us of our sins and he will cause us to bring this unconfessed sin into confession and to allow God to forgive us and to cleanse us anew, make us pure and holy and worthy to bring honor and glory to him. So just like the 144,000, we also need to live blameless lives. Does that mean that we're sinless? No. But it means that we live in such a way that when we do sin against God, there's an instant conviction through the Holy Spirit. Then that leads us to confession. That leads to God's forgiveness and cleansing. Now, that sounds easy, but it's so easy for us to rationalize things and make things that are sinful seem like they're not sinful. And so we have to be very careful of how we rationalize things. When God convicts us, we need to understand we've done something wrong. We need to admit it, confess it before the Lord, and he then will forgive us and cleanse us. And then we'll be able to be used for his honor and glory, just like the 144,000. Now, let's be honest. I don't think that the 144,000 were the only ones witnessing on the face of this earth. I believe that every single child of God that, that came to salvation during the tribulation, even during the great tribulation, were bold in their witness. I believe that even their deaths were a witness to their faith in Christ. Even in death, as God basically has already told us that many, if not all, Christians in the Great Tribulation will die probably a gruesome death. I think most of them will, have, will be beheaded. I think that will be the, whether it's guillotine or a sword, whichever way it is, I believe that's going to be kind of the, the typical method. However they die, they'll die in faith. And they'll die as a witness to their faith in Christ. So we need to be like the 144,000. They were sealed, they were protected, but they kept praying, uh, preaching the gospel. But those who heard it, those who responded, those who came to salvation, even with their lives, they proclaimed Christ as Savior and Lord and died for it. Let's close with prayer then. Dear Lord, again, we open our hearts to you, and Lord, just pray that you'll use what we've studied today to, Lord, to encourage us to be your witnesses. And Lord, whatever gift in this you have given us. May we be found faithful. Help us, Lord, to see the needs, the spiritual needs of those around us. And Lord, to share the 
the glory of your son Jesus in such a way that they will be drawn to him. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that you will do the drawing. Lord, may we just be your instruments of sharing uh, the, the truths so that they will be exposed to the truths and your spirit will draw them to the truth. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for our study. Lord, thank you that we know the end of the story, that you are victorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.